0: Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. Break the breakthrough. Break Break. the breakthrough. You are now listening to Breakthrough News. It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this The Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch Out, 19th of July, 2021. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about the lack of any real penalties or significant punishments as it concerns companies violating workplace safety and wage and hour laws. We're going to be talking about the stock buyback bonanza happening right now in the U.S., just billions of dollars being funneled to Wall Street bankers, essentially for nothing. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with what's going on in Haiti right now. Two weeks after the de facto President Jovenel Moise was assassinated. Well, we are now just about two weeks out from the brutal assassination of Haiti's de facto President Jovenel Moise. And despite a whole range of information having been brought out in the media, what exactly happened and what's true and what's false is just unknown. And the whole thing continues to be just mired in confusion almost as much as. On the day it took place, the investigation is now spanning four countries, and it's involving everyone from Colombian intelligence to the FBI. And the things that have been spun out of this investigation, especially the information being released by the Haitian government, is really just a confusing set of allegations and alleged details that just don't really add up. At the same time, that's happening over the weekend, the core group countries, and the core group is composed of the ambassadors from Germany, Brazil, Canada, Spain, the US, France, the European Union, and representatives of the UN and the Organization of American States, in Haiti, so it's sort of the representation of the "quote unquote" international community. And over the weekend, they put out of what originally was a very confusing memorandum, withdrawing support from Claude Joseph, the acting de facto prime minister, and calling on Dr. Ariel Henri, who the assassinated president was said to appoint prime minister the day he was assassinated, to form a "quote unquote" inclusive government. And then today, Mr. Joseph stepped down after what was reported to be heavy pressure in favor of Mr. Henri. So. In just a couple of days, there was a total turnaround by mainly Western nations on who should hold power because they had originally been backing Joseph. So a lot happening there. And while all that was happening, the mass of civil society organizations that have been behind the massive protest movement demanding the removal of Moyes before his assassination is also attempting to reach a consensus on a way forward and continues to reject Henri-Joseph. Any of these interim authorities being put together by the quote-unquote international community and the idea of elections being held in September, which the core group countries have been insisting on and which these various so-called governments have been saying they will carry out. So that's maybe a general overview of where we are, but getting to the investigation itself, quite frankly – Despite the fact that there's a lot of information flowing around, we don't really know a lot. There's a lot of serious holes in what we do know, and it's tough to explain the whole thing with one clear through line. And the strangeness of the whole story starts with the alleged mastermind, Dr. Christian Sinone. Authorities claim he set the whole thing in motion in order to become president himself. However, Sunon is basically an unknown, lived off and on in Florida, appears to not even have had a medical license, and all available records pertaining to his financial situation seem to show him not having anything close to the type of money to pull this whole thing off. In fact, one of the most prominent Haitian-American business people in South Florida told the New York Times, quote, no one has ever heard of him. That being said, Sinon did seem to be a participant in a series of meetings in the Dominican Republic, which did include some other key alleged members of the plot, in particular Antonio Triago, who owns the security company CTU that hired the Colombian mercenaries that were a part of the operation, and also Walter Vintamilla, who owns a financial services company that allegedly helped finance the operation. Now, this again raises some questions because neither of those companies really has anything like the type of track record you would expect one to have, especially the financial services company, that would lead one to believe they could be paying dozens of people what appeared to be thousands of dollars a month, plus all the extra expenses to pull off what essentially would be a major coup in Haiti. That being said, CTU, the security firm, does seem to have maybe tangential and more serious ties to the Colombian oligarchy and security services. There are several photos of Intriago with Colombian President Ivan Duque, and CTU was also involved in the so-called humanitarian aid concert on the border with Venezuela a couple years ago that led to a totally fraudulent aid caravan being burned by anti-Venezuelan government forces and what was a false flag attempt against the Maduro government designed to blame them for destroying aid. And Triago, by the way, is Venezuelan and seems to have ties to the right-wing opposition there, and certainly in their real base, which is in South Florida. The other major question is, how did this assassination take place without any fighting with Jovenel's guards, none of whom appeared to have been injured at all? And Dimitri Harard, the palace security chief, has actually been held by the government on suspicion of being involved. Makes sense. And there were at least two dozen, maybe more guards assigned to Jovenel. There were three police checkpoints, and... Really, reporting by the Miami Herald has shown that Harard at the scene was seemingly not really taking charge and certainly not really trying to save the president, at least not from their reporting while this thing was going on. So the story really is very hard to follow. There are a lot of contradictory statements about what happened that night, but one thing seems abundantly clear, and that is the attackers had the acquiescence of the presidential security to carry this thing out. But that also brings up another issue, which is why there seems to have been no escape plan. I mean, they gained access to Jovenel's presidential mansion seemingly with total ease. But then somehow there was no plan to get out of the country, even to get out of the neighborhood, it seems. Were they betrayed? Were they set up by someone hoping they'd be killed to help cover the tracks of the assassination planners? I mean, who knows? But it just seems totally bizarre that they only had half a plan. It's also worth noting the family members of some of those on the hit team swear up and down, or the alleged hit team, I should say, swear up and down that they were not told, those who joined this team, that they were being hired for anything like a presidential assassination. And some apparently were told they were just being hired to protect people, not kill anyone. So all of this obviously is pretty confusing. And as I said, plenty of the information that has released just doesn't seem to make clear sense in terms of a theory of the crime. So if you're confused by all that, I'm also confused. Everyone seems confused. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense at all. But nevertheless, that's what we know about the investigation. The Haitian Popular Press Agency, which is a media organization close to the mass movement there in Haiti, is reporting that as all of this is going on, there have been calls from across civil society for solutions to truly emerge from the mass popular movement, not from these elite maneuvers being manipulated by the core group countries. There's now a commission to find a solution to the crisis right at the center of these efforts, a number of organizations involved in the protest, trying to bring together everyone who is involved in the protest. And that was a very wide swath of the country, of all civil society, religious organizations, and the like, but to try to bring all these folks together to find a new way forward, recognizing that the constitutional order at this point is so damaged. Jovenel had essentially disbanded the legislature. The courts are in total disarray because of his actions. There's been over a year of ruling by decree and now half a year of essentially dictatorial de facto government outside of the constitutional mandate. So what the civil society groups are arguing is they have to find a way forward, the constitution can't really be much of a guide at this point, since its institutions have been so abused by Jovenel and now by those who have taken power at the behest of the core group. But they are united in opposition to the elections due in September, which the interim de facto government is committed to, and which the U.S. and other members of the international community insist on. And they seemingly insist on this because it's important for them to be seen as supporting quote-unquote democracy in Haiti. They need the fig leaf of democracy to return, and they're hoping that this total illegal government with almost no backing amongst the people can hold some form of elections they can call legitimate and then say, hey, we're backing democracy in Haiti without ever addressing the real issues being raised by the movement that has just shaken the country since last fall. And the social situation in the country continues to be dire. One major issue continues to be a big shortage of gasoline. Now, that's huge in Haiti because there's only private transport. So private transport is how everyone gets everywhere. And many people make their living driving tap-taps. It's basically a small bus or motorcycles or private cars operated as taxis. So gas shortages have a big impact on just everyone's ability to get to and from where they need to go to make their living and on those who make a living from helping people get to and fro radio resistance who breakthrough news is in close communication with and has partnered on, on our trip to Haiti uh, last March has visited recently a number of gas stations and distributors and noted a range of issues. One being the rise in a black market in gasoline, seemingly facilitated by some gas station owners, and also major challenges with distribution linked to the lack of security in the country, as well as the incompetence of public authorities allegedly supposed to be managing the problem of distribution of gas. Which more or less gets us to the bottom of the issue. All of this is happening because the U.S. and other powerful nations have done everything possible to make sure that Haitian governments maintain a neo-colonial, zero-development, maximum resource extraction style of economy. And these countries, the U.S. at the forefront of them, have mounted and supported coups, weaponized aid, and abused the international process, among other things, in order to accomplish this. It's created a situation with a totally unstable corrupt government under Jovenel that led to a mass uprising which struggled to depose Jovenel specifically due to the support of the U.S. and other major countries for him, which only led this situation to deteriorate even further. And here we are. So we aren't much closer to figuring out what happened to Jovenel, the assassinated former de facto president, but one thing seems clear, that the plot was hatched somewhere in the environs of the far-right political network that has been constructed by the U.S. across Latin America to push similar styles of neo-colonial policies, using whatever means it can find. And this network has a history of coups, military dictatorships, dirty wars, corruption, and more. So is it any surprise, really, that it spawned something like this. Now you may remember back in February when the grocery store giant Kroger said it was closing stores in Seattle and Long Beach after those cities voted to increase the pay for grocery and other frontline workers. Hero pay it was called because these workers had borne the brunt of the pandemic economy and You know, Kroger was closing these stores despite having boasted of record profits all year long in 2020. Well, despite not wanting to pay their workers $4 more an hour in those two states, Kroger has decided that it wants to hand over hundreds of millions of dollars to Wall Street bankers and stock buybacks. Now, stock buybacks are basically like dividends. They are a reward a company gives out to shareholders. Dividends, however, are more permanent where buybacks are one-offs. So it is a way to make your stock more attractive to hold because people want to hold stocks that give out the best rewards, so the highest dividends, for instance. But there's more flexibility because a dividend is essentially a permanent ongoing thing. It can change, but it's something that you're locked into for an amount of time. So again, Doing a buyback, which is just giving the money away to Wall Street investors, is an easier way to make people happy without having to be locked into doing the same thing year after year. And Kroger has announced that they will be giving $1 billion over in stock buybacks this year. So despite a great year financially, workers get totally shafted while investors get paid off. Of course, it isn't just Kroger. S&P 500 corporations have already set a record for the first six months of this year in stock buybacks, spending $567 billion funneling cash to Wall Street bankers. And Goldman Sachs anticipates there will be a total of $726 billion in stock buybacks this year. Just for comparison's sake, it would cost $125 billion to bring all the bridges in the U.S. up to code. $434 $434 billion to make sure all of America's water systems are up to snuff, and about $100 billion to make sure the whole country is wired for broadband. So you can fix all of America's bridges, take the lead out of all the water pipes, and make sure that everyone can have high-speed internet and still have $67 billion left over for the same amount of money that massive, profitable corporations are giving out to Wall Street as a thank you for being a major shareholder. And interestingly enough... These are the same corporations whose trade groups are doing everything possible to lobby against raising their taxes to fix the bridges, dams, roads, water systems, schools, and internet infrastructure. That's capitalism for you, where keeping the bridges from collapsing is treated as an optional expense, but giving away cash to Wall Street is considered great business practice. While we are talking about Wall Street here, One thing that's frequently remarked upon when people talk about Wall Street is how those big fines you always hear that are levied for this and that financial crime seem to do very little to deter these big firms from constantly breaking the law. One thing you may not know is when it comes to workplace safety, or in other words, the life and limb of working people, the penalties are far less severe than even those ineffectual ones levied on Wall Street banks for financial crimes and that correspondingly there is little to no deterrent effect and almost an encouragement of cutting corners on keeping you safe on the job. And the same is true of violations of wage and hour laws, basically making sure you get paid correctly. As the Economic Policy Institute points out, the maximum penalty for a willful OSHA violation is just 6.3% of the maximum penalty for insider trading. While a maximum penalty for a standard OSHA violation is well below 1% of the maximum insider trading penalty. Similarly, a minimum wage or overtime violation is less than a tenth of a percent of the insider trading penalty. Even a willful child labor violation makes up only 5.6% of this insider trading fine. So that's right, a company can willfully, that is, deliberately, Create a workplace violation that leads for you to die. And the maximum penalty is just 6.3% of the maximum penalty for insider trading. A recent report on wage and hour laws by the Peterson Institute, which is known not for being super progressive, and that, by the way, is understated, notes that the cost of the fines is minuscule when, quote, compared to the profits that can be earned through noncompliance. The study noted that businesses need to have about a 78% to 88% chance of being caught for a company to really feel like, ooh, we better comply. They detail that the true chance of investigations in wage and hour disputes is about 2%. You might not be surprised to learn that two-thirds of all low-wage workers are victims of wage theft. In 2012, the amount of money recovered by authorities in wage theft, so just what they got back, not what was actually stolen, amounted to about a billion dollars. That was three times more than all bank robberies, convenience store robberies, street and highway robberies, and gas station robberies that year. Hmm. To highlight how this works, the Economic Policy Institute details the case of Hegel metal fabrication, laying out that, quote, OSHA issued a willful penalty for leaving employees exposed to laser cutting machines, which could have struck and crushed them, despite the obvious risks. Indeed, a 23-year-old worker was fatally crushed by such a machine, prompting the investigation that led to the penalty. However, after three willful violations and six serious citations, OSHA's fines for the company totaled only $317,000. Later, the fine was reduced to $200,000 in total, an average of only $22,222 per violation. Further, OSHA itself notes that the violating employer had been issued... 23 previous citations, including willful and serious citations for exposing workers to dangerous conditions. Although the company incurred many previous OSHA violations, they continued to violate regulations without extensive fines to deter future violations, leading to the recent penalties in the company being placed on OSHA's severe violator enforcement program and the company abruptly closed in 2015. Just last month, by the way, OSHA brought charges against a paper company which fired a worker for demanding proper safety equipment after OSHA investigated and found that they were in violation of the law for not providing that same proper safety equipment. Yes, that's right. They just flouted the investigation, refused to provide the safety equipment, then they actually fired the person who asked for it. Just gives you a sense, all told there, of the brazenness in which companies are operating. Under the Trump administration, why wouldn't they? The number of OSHA investigators fell to a 45-year low. As the National Employment Law Project lays out, quote, there has been a 25% drop in heat-related inspections, a 66% drop in inspections related to musculoskeletal injuries, a 27% drop in inspections where OSHA measures workers' chemical exposures, and a 38% drop in the highest penalty, quote-unquote, significant cases. And also, during the same period, you may not be surprised to hear, the number of mandatory inspections that are triggered when someone dies or there's a major catastrophic injury rose to the highest level they had been in a decade. Well, the upshot here is pretty clear, there's almost no real penalty for violating workplace safety or wage and hour laws, and thus they are wantonly violated, leaving us with a situation of skyrocketing workplace injuries and deaths and more wage theft in a year than every other form of theft combined.